in July. All right. Hello. Again, it says stop recording. The counter hasn't started ticking yet. So now that the ticker is started. Well, Zach, welcome. Welcome to my family. Welcome, friend. That's all that this is all about. The entire Dhamma is nothing but friendship. And the most important part is the friendship within. That when we really establish a correct friendship so that uh, the mind becomes unified and whole, then we can deal with the world as if the world was a unified system. But because we're proud normally on the inside, we see great diversity also in the outside world. Uh, so the whole practice of gaining the unification of mind has to do with basically two qualities that we can look at in the sense of uh, the, the first step would be of the practice of Anapanasati, especially the body, the feelings, and the mind, and getting that together. Because otherwise, when the mind, feeling, and body are not together, then most of the uh, Dhamma-nupasana, or most of the stuff that happens in the mind, is actually unwholesome and is a hindrance not only to our well-being in the moment, but it also hinders us from seeing things correctly. And so the fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati Sutta is um, very deeply important. Uh, that it's in fact the entire practice once the student is fit for practice or it's the entire work that might needs to be done once the mind is fit for work. Right. So we see then that getting the body, the feeling, and the mind fit for work so that we can then operate with the Dhamma in a wholesome way. Uh, this is laid out, but it's laid out only in a kind of a formalized way in the Anapanasati Sutta number 118. But when we look at other suttas, we can see how that puts together. The Anapanasati Sutta actually fits right well with the Satipatthana Sutta, number 10, where it also goes through the body, the feelings, and the mind in a completely different way. But then we have the Dhammanupasana, or the fourth tetrad, or the fourth group of uh, the Satipatthana. So, in fact, the Anapanasati, you probably understand, is based upon the Satipatthana in the sense that there is a body group of Anapanasati that corresponds to the Satipatthana Sutta for the Kaya, or the body there. So, you have Kaya Nupasana, Vedanu Nupasana, Sita Nupasana, or Chitta Nupasana, Dhamma Nupasana, uh, as the format or the formality of both the Anapanasati Sutta and the Satipatthana Sutta. And so they fit together just like this, except that there's Igurayas in each one of them, so that they run and circle around each other. And so understanding both of them, uh, of these suttas, help to understand. They're just doing the same teaching from different perspectives. But when you see the different perspectives, you can begin to get an overall viewpoint about how things are. An example of that, by the way, is that people who study various frames of reference of psychology understand psychology itself better than if they stay in one modality or one frame of reference. Say if they stayed with Freudian psychology, they could become fairly good psychologists but they're missing whole new ways of looking at the human mind that other psychologists have taken on. And so the Buddha was doing this. Now, there's a third sutta that really puts this together, and that's number 111, the one by one as they occur. And in this sutta, 
it really exquisitely points out really what's going on. And that is, is that we need to get the mind fit for work, which means get the mind into the first jhana, and that we do that with the first tetrad of Anapanasati, most specifically so that we get the mind and the feelings and the body together so that the body is relaxed. The, uh, the feelings are the feelings of joy and pleasure and satisfaction and security. And on top of that, an exuberance of success. We can do this with the mind having only wholesome thoughts. This is what we can define as jhana state, and this, these five factors that we've just talked about, with the mind free from hindrance, we have sukha and piti, and then we have the ability to apply the mind to wholesome thoughts and keep sustaining it on wholesome thoughts. These are the five jhana factors, and when we have these five jhana factors together, now we're fit for work. Now is the time for the mind to be really looking at what needs to be looked at, and that in fact we can call this the noting that is known of in the Mahasi method. But that mostly in the Mahasi method, the, the point is, is that people don't practice correctly. They start out doing the Mahasi method while there are still unwholesome thoughts and while they still have unwholesome feelings. And while the body may not be relaxed. But once we get the body relaxed and the feelings uh, all uh, in a sense of well-being and the mind uh, uh, able to stay on wholesome thoughts, only now do we then move into what are we going to do now that the mind is fit for work? Now, before I do that, I'm going to talk to you about it. And in fact, that this was known, this first jhana and these jhanas were known by the Buddha before he became enlightened. And that it was widely practiced. But it's even known that Sariputta, who became a student of the Buddha, was also adept at jhana before he came to the Buddha. Okay, there's our friend coming in that I mentioned. So I'm going to go ahead and let him in on this conversation if I can. It doesn't shoot. Actually, oh, here he comes. All right. Hello. Well, uh, hello. Welcome to this new call. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to see you too. This is Zach. He's in Vancouver. Hi, Zach. Hi, how's it going? And to Good you. Uh, my name is Ronan. I'm in Washington. Great. Nice to meet. Nice to see so you, too. you guys are close together. May you become good Dhamma buddies. <laughs> Actually, I have relatives in Vancouver. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Uh, as a bit of a review and to catch you up, the basic question is, what is the fourth tetrad in the Anapanasati Sutta? And the answer oh, to that is, is that the fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati Sutta, if you look and understand it from the perspective of other suttas, we can see that the point is, is that we get the body, the feeling, and the mind straightened out, get it completely wholesome, get everything ready to go, and then we do the Dhammanipasana. Now, when we say that we're getting the body, the mind, and the feelings ready to go or fit for work, that basically means that the body is relaxed, that the feelings are the feelings of safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. And on top of that is the attitude of, we can do this. This we're going to get. We're successful at this. Okay. And then the mind is to be trained so that we have one wholesome thought after another. We apply the mind to the wholesome and we sustain it in the wholesome. 
once we have the body, the feelings, and the mind, with the body relaxed, the feelings in a state of well-being, and the mind in the wholesome, these are the parts that you could put together and call this the first jhana. In the sense that the mind is wholesome, we are free from hindrances. We have the pity and the sukha. The pity is the uh, exuberance and the can-do attitude, uh, the enthusiasm, the curiosity part of the well-being that we have, which is the well-being of safety, security, comfort, and all of that. And the body is relaxed. Well, this indicates that uh, many people don't get into that state for one of the reasons is they don't get the body, they don't let the body relax. There's other things about it that uh, people then will practice um, their meditation for 40, 50, 60 years and never get themselves into the state where the mind is actually fit for work so that they can actually do the work that needs to be done. And yet they call themselves meditators. <laughs> there is a whole different class of people, and this started from the time before the Buddha, that in fact this was the issue with the Buddha himself, that he was able to go through the fourth, through the jhanas, but he didn't know what to do with him other than the jhanas themselves were the goal. <laughs> rather than recognizing that there's actually a reason for being able to do this, and that is getting the mind fit for work so that now we can do the work. Ah, so uh, there was another one that was like that. In fact, it was well known in the time of the Buddha that many people could practice jhana during those days. That it was part of the spiritual practices because that was the goal. So now in Western Buddhism, we have a whole lot of people who lust and thirst after jhana as if it were the goal itself. Kind of like bragging rights, I suppose. But there is something else to do with it. And the this is laid out quite specifically in the Anapanasati Sutta. It's, it's laid out quite specifically in the Satipatthana Sutta. And it's laid out exquisitely simple in the uh, Sutta number 111 in the one by one as they occur, because here the Buddha actually gives a list of one by one as they occur to where in both the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta, they're taking more of an overview. And so in the overview, in the Anapanasati Sutta, it merely talks about anicca in the sense of things arise and they pass away, and then they uh, uh, die out, and then we let them go. Those are the four kind of stages, the relinquishment is the final uh, step of Anapanasati. And this why the word let go is so famous in Western Buddhism without even understanding what it is supposed to let go of. And so we go around uh, pointing at let go of this and let go of that. Like let go of your bad attitude about me. <laughs> One of the things that people have a lot of, of let goes about. But here the relinquishment is the relinquishment of a much shorter period of time that we've got the mind really, really fit for work at this point in time. And so we begin to look at the uh, and begin to see things at a mind moment level so that we're actually observing things now at faster than uh, once a second, that the mind gets really sharp and we're paying very, very close attention so that when, for instance, a thought arises, we see it arise. But as we get better at it, we begin to see not only does that thought arise, but the next thought arises, and then the next thought arises. But as soon as this thought arises and the next thought arises, this thought fades away. This thought flitters out. Okay that we're much more likely to notice when the lights come on than we are to notice when the lights dim out. And so this is something that we start paying attention to that's very difficult to pay attention to when we're having unwholesome thoughts 
because we tend to cling to the unwholesome. That's why they are unwholesome is because they're clinging to there anyway. So we have to be very clean about this in the sense of beginning to actually watch very wholesome things that are happening in the mind-body complex that arise and that flitter away only a tenth of a second later to have something new arise, only for that to flitter away, only to have something new arise. And so in this regard, what we begin to see is how the mind operates, even though it's applied and sustained, we can see that everything is constantly in motion, even in the mind. And even when we're paying attention to things in the senses, we see that there too, nothing is stable, that everything is arising and passing away, that in fact, the wind on the skin or the touch of the cloth, when we start paying attention to what this shoulder feels like, we're not paying attention to this shoulder, but when we pay attention to this shoulder, the attention of this shoulder fades away. Or we can think about uh, our, our face. And we can think about the face and it's in the awareness. And now we think about the right foot. And as we do, the thought of the face fades away. And so this is what this statement is all about. And when we recognize that everything is in flux, everything arises and passes away very quickly. One way of looking at it is to see that the human mind is actually quite slow because it operates at about the tenth of a second level, which is actually quite slow. And that's beneficial in many regards. If the mind's eye was fast enough to where we can see things at a hundredth of a second, guess how big our movie files would have to be? <laughs> because they'd have to be running at 300 frames a minute or 300 frames a second rather than 30 frames a second because the mind is 10 times as fast. Okay. This is what they began to understand. That's why they ran movies for many years at 24 frames a second is because when you run movies at 10 frames a second, you can see the flicker, especially if it's action or like uh, action, like you watch an explosion and then you watch things jump rather than move uh, easily. This, in fact, is what they called flicker. And this is why uh, when I was in the Navy, when we go to the movies, we don't call them movies, we call them flicks. <laughs> you probably have heard that before. Call them, why do they call them flicks? Because in the really, really old days of movies, the, uh, the speed of the film was so slow that you could see the flickering in there when they were running at 10 frames and 15 frames a second. So that begins to understand, and we can also see it from the perspective of reaction time, that there's actually programs on the internet that you can test reaction time. They will turn the screen is all red, and they'll turn it to green, and you're supposed to click the mouse as soon as you can to see if you can get it down to 200 milliseconds. Well, if you think about it, 200 milliseconds is the thought of seeing it, and then the second part is the thought of clicking the mouse. So that takes two thought moments, the thought moment of seeing it and the thought moment of clicking. And if you could get it down to about 200 milliseconds, 200 microseconds, sorry, then that's about one-fifth of a second. And so that means that your mind, you, you, but you're paying attention then. Normally when we're not paying attention, normally when we're letting the mind just race or run wherever it's going, it, sometimes perception is very slow. That we can get really, really slow. We're not really up to scratch. But when we're up to scratch, about tenth of a second, we're still missing out on the things that happen on their own much faster than that. That in fact, uh, the, psycho the, uh, the particle physicist and the astrophysicist are beginning to think that there's a whole new property that they need to investigate, but they don't have a clue about how to do it. And they're calling this thing causality in the sense of what causes the speed of light. What causes waves? Why do waves go up and then start going down? How do energy fluctuations actually happen? So they're actually going after the very basic properties of the universe. 
in the sense of causality. Why do, do quarks stick together? And what are the gluons that put them together has to do with the cause and effect relationship. And this stuff happens at such a fantastically fast uh, action that we couldn't devise any scientific instruments because the scientific instruments of collecting of data is so complicated that we couldn't put it down to the level of causality. But even if a camera is taking a billion frames a second, it's still missing out on a whole lot of stuff. And so things happen very fast in reality, but the best that we can begin to experience is in the human mind is about a tenth of a second. But that's well enough to begin to see how the mind works. And this is basically what we're looking at, is we're going to look at the things that occur one by one as they occur so that we can begin to see how the mind works. Now, one of the ways of understanding this is that there's actually, it appears, it takes about two lines of text to list all the things that Sariputta is going to be aware of in this one by one as they occur. <laughs> long list of stuff. But when we understand the long list of stuff is actually long uh, details of categories. And that we can divide these things into the categories and get a better understanding of what's to be done. And the first thing that is on the list that Buddha gives of Sariputta one by one as they occur is to investigate the applied mind and the sustained mind. In other words, the first thing that we're going to investigate with a mind that's capable of work is to look at the mind that's capable of work is to recognize, yes, this is one wholesome thought after another. Yes, this is one wholesome thought after another. Yes, we can get it like that. That's the way that we begin to practice, is to make sure that the one thing that we're going to note above all else is that the mind is still in a wholesome state. We can call this guarding. But then there's a lot of other stuff to pay attention to. And one of them would be basically, so we can ask questions like this in the sense of um, how's my applied thought? Am I applying my mind to wholesome? How is my mind sustained? Is it sustained in the wholesome? How is my investigation of this to make sure that I'm applying and sustaining thoughts and only the wholesome? So that's one of the things that we can apply one by one as they occur. The next item on the list then would be other factors of the first jhana. An example of that would be how is my, uh, not just investigation, but how is my sati? How is my effort? How is my attitude? That would take us to the Eightfold Noble Path, but also in sati, or excuse me, with the sati, we can also see how is my sukha? How is my pity? How is my exuberance? Wow, doesn't this feel great that I can actually see what the mind is doing? And so we actually start to investigate. Once we're in the first jhana, we begin to investigate the first jhana to make that more and more and more of a skill. In the old days, and what people try to do in nowadays is, is that they see that the goal of first jhana is nothing but a stepping stone to the second jhana. And many times without even getting a good established first jhana, they'll be working on the second jhana all to have it all fall on the floor right in front of them. Okay, so basically what we need to do then in first jhana is get this first jhana really firmly established by watching the arising and the passing away of these thoughts. One wholesome thought after another means that the first thought died and the second thought come up. And then that thought dies as the next one is coming up. And so we start watching this play in the mind and begin to apply it not only to the, I see one wholesome thought after another, but look at that thought die. Look at that thought fade away. Look at that thought just 
And then with that, we can begin to actively practice letting it go. To actually let these thoughts go. Because they're dying away anyway, only to arise to a new thought. And we let that thought go when it dies also. Which means at this level, we begin to put gaps in these wholesome thoughts because we actually do let it go rather than repeating it. Oh, it's dead. Let me do it again. Oh, it died. Let me do it again. That so we just let it die. Let it go. And this is, in fact, part of the training then that allows us to go into the second jhana is because when we let go of the wholesome thoughts, and we can do this with the breath, that as we breathe out, we breathe out and let go of that thought, and then we hold the breath on uh, between the out breath and the in breath while the mind is stopped. And the mind will only start back up when the breathing starts back up, or the urge for the breathing will be the thought that will arise. And so we can begin to train the mind and the breathing together like this so that we go into very, very relaxed states. We can think of the second jhana is fully, fully relaxed compared to the first jhana is very agitated. Then we can think of the, uh, the first jhana is fully, fully relaxed as compared to the agitation of a normal mind. <laughs> And so this is the way that we're looking at it. We're looking at it going from one relaxed state to a deeper relaxed state. And we do this by beginning to watch these thoughts fade out so that we can begin then to um, allow the thoughts to fade away without new ones arising. And now we can then pay even better attention to all of the other stuff that's going on like the pity and the sukha, that in fact, when the mind stops, the pity begins to get very, very large, very strong. Wow, this is really marvelous. <laughs> Except that if we have the thought, wow, this is really marvelous, we pulled ourselves out of the second jhana. But if we can have that feeling of, wow, this is really marvelous, without thinking thoughts of, wow, this is really marvelous, then we can maintain the second jhana. This is part of the skill of getting into and maintaining the second jhana is because we don't allow that those thoughts of exuberance to come up. And thoughts of exuberance, of, wow, this is really great. You would think would be really wholesome. Well, yes, they are at one level, but they're also very active and not particularly peaceful in a different way of looking at it. And so as we progress in this notification, we go through first the thought system, then we recognize how good we feel and let that begin to subside. So that then we go into just a state of complete satisfaction and that would then be called third jhana. We still have all of these other things to look at. So let's back up a bit and give a more understanding of the list in the sense that I'm going to add a third ingredient to that list now. The first two ingredients of the list was what are the jhana factors now that I'm in jhana? What are the factors of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path that got me into the first jhana through Anapanasati? Okay, the third ingredient now is actually looking at how the mind works when it is in a completely wholesome state. So now we're going to add in the five aggregates. And when we talk about the five aggregates, we're also talking about the five aggregates in, in, as part of Paticca Samupada. And we're most specifically looking at items. Uh, the three items that are most specifically mentioned are consciousness, perceptions, and feelings. All right, now the Paticca Samupada is a complete package, but the package itself has to do with when the feelings are ignorant. And since we're already practicing now in the, uh, the first jhana and we have only wholesome thoughts, we can see now that the mind is actually fit for work at this point of feelings, and therefore there is no ignorance for us to go into the various things that lead into dukkha. We've only got in this stage 
We've only got wholesome things to look at. And that's really great because if we can look at things in the sense of only wholesome because the mind is wholesome, that gives us an understanding through uh, the concept of sunyata of what's not there. Is what is not there is what we normally do. What is not there is what we've been doing for day after day, month after month, year after year, our whole lives, which is wanting something because we like it. Now we're in the state of feelings, and the feelings that we're looking at are the feelings of liking that have no wanting because of this letting go that we were talking about. The letting go of one thought after another, even though I love this thought, even though I like it, I don't have to keep it. I can let it go. But normally what happens is, is that if we like something, we cling to it. If we cling to it, then that is the birth of the self. So, in fact, this whole state that we're talking about at first jhana, where we're actively um, investigating and noting the wholesome things, we're actually actively um, avoiding all of the unwholesome, including selfishness. And so we begin to see that at that feeling level. What are feelings? And isn't it marvelous that I can have only wholesome feelings right now, only uh, happy feelings that don't have this unwholesome quality to them? So later we'll talk in, in detail about what the whole path of Paticca Samapati is and how the mind works, it winds up in suffering. But right now we're talking about what are we going to do when the mind is really wholesome? And so when it's really wholesome, we're not actually able to see what the mind is doing when it's dirty. Because it's not dirty right now. It's clean right now. And so the feelings that we have are feelings that, that are really nice. But we can also see that when the, when the feelings get ignorant, the feeling then turns into wanting. I like it becomes wanting. I wanting becomes I got to have it. In the Pali, this is Vedana, the, uh, the liking, turns into upadana, excuse me, tanha, thirsting or wanting. And when we're thirsty, that means that we need something. We're incomplete. We're not whole. All right. So that's a very unwholesome feeling is to feel unwhole. <laughs> Play on words there. And we feel empty inside and we want to be filled by that object that we want like a girl or a house or a car or a dog or a bicycle or whatever. A lot of people try to plug God into that hole. I want God. But it's always a sense of wanting. But while we're in the state of first jhana, we're satisfied and we reflect upon that in the sense that these feelings are completely wholesome. These feelings do not lead to wanting or clinging, or anything, that they're marvelous, right like they are. And so this is the way that we begin to look at these things. We look at the way we feel. We also begin to look at how we process information to come up with the results that we do. When I say that, I'm talking about the word perception. How do we perceive things? <clears throat> Now, I, right now, I don't want this to go off into a deep lesson of Paticca Samapada. We'll talk about it later. But rather that when the mind is in the state of first jhana, perception is something that's worth looking at because that's how the mind works, is that we see an object with our senses and then we try to interpret and make something out of it. And the, and the process of seeing an object and making sense out of it is called perception or perceiving. The word sieve and the perceive has to do with seeing, and we're talking about seeing it on the inside. So in fact, we could actually say there's two kinds of consciousness. Two kinds of consciousness, not one. Let me give you the example of the two kinds of consciousness. One is I see that thing out there. I see it, it's a tree. Then the other kind of consciousness is I see what you mean. I understand. Okay, so 
this kind of seeing, this kind of consciousness in the Pali is also referred to in the Pali as uh, salayatana, to where the senses are the atana, but the salayatana is the internal. And the way we create that is through perception. So watching that process of trying to make sense out of the world, because guess what? While we're making sense out of the world, we're not receiving new data from the world. It's like we receive a packet, we process it, we make sense out of it, we decide how we're going to feel about it, and all of that, we're not paying attention to what happens next. So we then go back and we get some more input, we perceive it more, we make something out of it, we're impacted by that, we have feelings about it, and all of that time we're still not taking input. And so uh, as a meditator, while you're in first jhana, we can begin to watch that process because we're beginning to put an end to this perception and only get consciousness because when we can get only consciousness, that's really to be here now just in sensory input. And because we're not perceiving anything, we're not making anything out of it, there's nothing to feel. So basically we're looking at the, the succession of perception and consciousness through the investigation process. And as we do this, quite naturally, the mind moves into states that would now have to be labeled and considered the higher jhanas. To where in reality, the mind is still in first jhana, but we're paying attention to the things that need to be paid attention to in fourth jhana. And while we're paying attention to those things in fourth jhana, we're in the fourth jhana. And so we use the first jhana as a base for operations, maintaining wholesome thoughts and making sure if the mind starts thinking again, they're just going to only be thinking wholesome thoughts. This is in fact what it looks like that the Buddha meant by um, his statement about the middle path. That when he first started introducing the teaching of the middle path, he or uh, the entire teaching is based upon this middle path. Now, when we read in the in the sutras and talk about the the middle path between uh, self harming and uh, seeking essential desire, most people we think of it as big exaggerated um, extremes. And one extreme would be self flagellation, beating oneself with a chain. Poking knives and and spears through the cheeks, and doing all of that kind of stuff, self-flagellation, torture. The Buddha was actually quite good at that. He almost killed himself by starvation, and he recognized that that's all he's getting is starved. He's not getting the goal of what he was looking for, and he did that after he did jhana. So on one side, one extreme is these uh, extreme religious practices of self-flagellation. And then on the other side, most people think when they talk about sensual desire is in fact going to the brothel, getting drunk, going to the movie, going to a hoochie-coochie, you know, that kind of sensual entertainment. And on a milder form, just simply watching television. And in a milder form in that, just sitting and musing. But the whole idea is, no, there's a whole nother group that we need to look at rather than just the brothel crowd as the extreme. Because the Buddha was giving this talk to people who had been on the spiritual journey with him for the past six years or so. That a couple of them actually left with him, uh, uh, left the palace with him that the whole idea that he snuck out in the middle of the night was not true. Really, what was true is he snuck out while his wife, wife was asleep, but mom and dad and the whole court knew it, and a whole bunch of people went with him, including his master teacher. So in that regard, we're not talking about uh, the distinction in the middle path between the brothel and self-harm. We're talking about the different the distinction between doing something harmful in order to get a good result on one side and seeking 
results on the other. And this is exactly what the jhana dudes were doing. They would go from one jhana to the next jhana to the next jhana without really knowing what to do with them because they were they had they went through these through sensual desire, desire of wanting the experience. The exactly the same thing is true when meditators are wanting to have experiences of rebirth or reincarnation or past lives or something is they're greedy for experience. They're wanting something. And these thoughts in the mind then are unwholesome. The same thing is true for those who would want enlightenment. They meditate because they want something. They want enlightenment. And because they want something, they're in a state of wanting something they don't have. And so these are that whole package that we can talk about that the Buddha says, avoid that, avoid desire for the jhanas, avoid desires for enlightenment, avoid desires for past life experiences, avoid all kinds of desires, and also stop harming yourself and working on things to try to get something that you don't have. Because all of those spiritual guys that were doing their self-flagellation were doing it with the idea of, okay, I've got all of this bad karma from the past. If I flagellate the body and make it feel really bad right now, then that's the same thing as burning up all the old bad karma, and I won't have to put up with old bad karma anymore, right? That's the mentality. The reality is, is that, no, you're doing new work right now. You're self-flagellating. You're harming yourself right now. You're adding to your comma base, not subtracting from it. Better to find this middle path point, and that middle path then would be a path where we don't have unwholesome thoughts, where we're harming ourselves, including thoughts of wanting something spiritual. So the middle path is, in fact, the wholesome thinking and the extremes on both sides are the extremes of desire, wanting, grasping, clinging, whatever. And so uh, whenever students are wanting, and most people, why would they meditate? They meditate to become enlightened, right? That's an old Zen joke, by the way, that the guy who... Uh, uh, it's a new student. He was a new Zen uh, dude uh, putting on the clothes and all of that. And he went up to the Zen master and he says, Zen master, do you meditate to become enlightened? And the old Zen master said, no, I'm just sitting here because I am enlightened. So that's the whole idea is, is that people want something from meditation and they're always going to be disappointed. But when we're actually enjoying just sitting here, that's a better reference for meditation. So meditation then is either something you do or it's something that is a state of mind. And so we have to make that frame of reference change. That's part of coming out of the unwholesome into the wholesome. Once we come into the wholesome, we can actually see how the mind works when it's free from all of this wanting. Because it's in a state of satisfaction right now. And so basically what we're saying then is the Buddha is, is pointing out in several different suttas and in several different ways that the actual goal of his practice, this Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, actually winds up being that we're walking around, talking, living our lives joyfully in the first jhana or easily able to get right into it. And that the mind stays in wholesome states. This is what we would mean by living the, the, uh, the middle path. And so that middle path then is the lightest point on the scale. That's enlightenment. You just do not want anything. Why? Because we're not carrying around the burdens of the desire of things that we want or the burden of the desire of ownership to the things that we did want, we did get, now we have and have to keep up or grieve over when we lose. But when the mind is completely satisfied, then that's the freedom itself. No more burdens. 
because I'm satisfied with the way things are. Yeah, I think that I had been creating something of enlightenment being no self or um, or or having you know all these ideas that it's that it's deep insight into impermanent dukkha no self the three characteristics but i think that in in attaching to that idea i neglected the the really obvious fact that just not wanting anything is enlightenment like you just mm -hmm. said all the wanting and craving around trying to you know gain insight in my practice is just perpetuating that that striving right when in the Congratulations. That's, that's important to recognize that the teaching of the Buddha is in this moment immediately. The dukkha, dukkha naroda is an immediate change. It's not dukkha, dukkha for this year, dukkha for next year, insight into dukkha, deep dukkha, deep meditation, more dukkha, and someday I know I will get enough insight that I'll be free from this dukkha. Right. That's the way that most people practice. And the right way to practice is. Ah, I see you, Myra, and out it goes. And we come right back into the wholesome state. When we recognize any unwholesome thought, then we can throw that thought out because we're working at that level of applied and sustained thought in the sense of guarding the mind, make sure that one thought after another is wholesome. And that becomes a pattern that becomes a habit on its own. Right now, everyone is in the habit of one unwholesome thought after another, after another. And so it's very difficult to see what is a wholesome and what is an unwholesome thought because they all look the same to me before. <laughs> but now that we're investigating and making big discernments we're be, and uh, with the full intention, that I can control the mind and therefore I choose to have only wholesome thoughts, then our standard begins to raise. We raise the bar in our own mind for the quality of thoughts that we're going to have. And eventually we raise the bar to the point that even the wholesome thoughts are too much work. And so we begin <laughs> to put spaces in them. <laughs> and so this is how uh, we start to practice. Right from the very beginning to make the mind wholesome. And so the Buddha then says is that if we can get into this Jhana and maintain it, then that is the path to enlightenment. Is to get the mind into the wholesome and to maintain it. But even if we uh, are maintaining that and, and, uh, and looking and investigating, we're still investigating only wholesome things as they arise and flitter away. And as we practice that, um, the confidence grows. Here's the important point now, that as Sariputta was practicing these things in the first jhana, he came to the understanding and realization that this practice is the path. This is it. And as we practice it, as Sariputta practice it more and more, that knowledge goes deeper and stronger. This is the right path. This is it. This beyond any other method is exactly what I need to do to be completely free from suffering all the time because look how much time I am free from suffering now already by practicing this. This is actually a very important factor on the path uh, that the Buddha would call then the, the third knowledge. The first knowledge has to do with the knowledge that no matter what the hindrances are, I can clean the hindrances out. The second knowledge is to get into the state of uh, jhana so that we know what's going on. We can see that this is it. The third knowledge is, is that we know for a fact, for sure, with full confidence that this path that we're on does lead to the end. This is actually 
what's happening is that the individual is gaining an enthusiasm for the path. We become more and more interested in this is the way to live our lives. Instead of chasing after women or chasing after money or chasing after this, I'm just going to sit here and not have to chase after all these good feelings. When we understand it like that, enthusiasm for the path begins to grow. And so we're actually talking about what is a soda pond. The one who is a soda pond is the one who is capable of having that particular point of view that this is it, man. There's nothing else. Everything is based upon this one. Let me get my mind cleaned out. That's all that matters. And that's what makes him a Dhamma dude. He's on the path now. From time to time, the mind will swing over in that direction. Hey, I like her. And but it, no, I don't need her. And I come back. So this is the way that we begin to practice more and more that pay, that state of contentment, that state of satisfaction. Investigate it well. Notice it well. Let it be a skill that's developed, the skill of satisfaction. Because that will take you a long way into the practice. So that's basically what the whole thing, the whole teaching is. In in um, summation, or as a repeat, step 13 of Anapanasati is to see the arising in the sense of everything is new. Step 14 is the fading away. Everything that was new immediately ago now is new again, and, is, and the old and the new has now faded into the old. And so we watch that fading away process. Everything is brand new, goes old as soon as something new comes up. New is nothing but a stage of oldness. And we start watching that. That every new thing happens immediately gets old because something new has just happened. And it's also happening faster than we're even capable of catching. So that leaves us the ability to, well, if everything is constantly in motion, everything is constantly new, then I can just kind of let the old go. I don't have to come back and keep re-getting it and reinforcing it. We begin then to recognize how much work it is to hold unwholesome thoughts. A whole lot of work just to have unwholesome junk thoughts. Tiring even. Debilitating sometimes. But when we begin to start waking up and paying attention and start making this judgment or this this uh, discernment, is this thought wholesome or what? And if it's a what, it's an out. And we keep coming back to wholesome over and over and over again. And pretty soon we get the benefits of that is, hey, I can do this. We begin to develop that pity. That that attitude that can do that lion's attitude. Of capable of handling anything. And so that state is then the state that we want to use to really investigate what is consciousness? What is perception? Look at the fact that not only perception is a lot of work, but while we're perceiving things, we're not watching what new is happening. A whole lot of new is going on, and we're not watching it because we're too busy. You know, you can see that, in fact, in many places like a racetrack. That my race is just behind. Right at the end of the race, my horse is just behind. And so I say, oh, shit, and tear my ticket up. And then my horse goes right in front and wins the race. <laughs> we're not watching what's going on. We're making too many choices behind it. Instead of thinking my horse is just behind, let's go. He's thinking I've lost. And he hadn't. And so this is the reason we want to stay with what's going on. We need to, we need to watch what's going on instead of making decisions about what's going on. This is, in fact, a full definition of one's right view. One's right view is to keep looking, keep investigating, keep your senses open, keep taking data in, and stop making so many conclusions.
Just keep investigating. So the whole Eightfold Noble Path and Anapanasati and Patita Samapada and all of this just fits right together. And and it comes together under that quality of be here now. <laughs> Ramdas. Ramdas, exactly. <laughs> be here now. Or um what's his name? Eckhart Tolle. This present moment, the power of right now. That's two books that he wrote. The power of now and this present moment. So it's big time. But that was the, in fact, it was so big in the time of the Buddha, that's what he called himself. He did not call himself Buddha. That happened about 250 years later. Before then, he called himself Tathagatha. And the word tatata means this or thus or thisness. And we in English will then say here and now. But in the in the time of the Buddha, the kind of words that they would use is this. Be, be this. This is it. Not over there or out there or back when or over yonder or anything. This one, not that. Okay, so this is what we mean by then. Uh, Tathagata, the one who is here, gone to thusness, gone to the present moment. So this is the practice of Anapanasati, is to watch, once we get the mind in a really, really good state, that's ready to go to work. Now we put it to work. And always the work is what's happening in the mind right now. This is consciousness. This is perception. This is feeling. Wow, what a nice, this good feeling is. But I perceived it. When I stop perceiving good feelings, the feelings melt away, but I can still watch and see what's going on and still be in the senses, even though I have no feelings about it because I'm not processing the data. I'm just experiencing the flood of input. Always letting go, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. Instant by instant by instant. Always coming into the present moment. Because if you cling to something, immediately it's going into the past, and there your arm is going right into the past with it. <laughs> so we let it go, because it's gone. And we always stay in this present moment. So, Zach, does that answer your question? Absolutely. 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 Great. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I think we've had enough of this. Rotem, uh, uh, how are you? You seem to have gotten quite a lot out of this one, too. <laughs> In fact, this is right down your alley anyway. This is about where you are. Is Let's get the mind fit for work so we can figure out what really needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And that is watch. Watch the fact that everything rises and passes away over and over again. Nothing else is happening. It's a parade. <laughs> Every moment is a new object coming around in, in the in the parade. So we just sit there and just enjoy the show. That's another whole way of looking at it. It's just enjoy the show. Here you are. You don't have to be an actor on the stage. You know, Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and everyone's an actor. Well, everyone's an actor because they're reading a script. What is the script? All of our past memories, our shoulds, woulds, coulds, all of that. When we stop and are in the present moment, we don't even need to be on stage. We go sit down in the audience. <laughs> No more work to do. Everything is easy now. As long as we maintain that. So get into it and sustain it. Those are the two jobs that we have as overall. The beginning jobs or the, uh, uh, the beginning point is right sati, right effort, right attitude. On top of all, right view. 
But once we have that going, that means that now the new skill development is to bring the jhana factors together easily and quickly so that we can get into the state um, of right attitude, the state of wholesome, the state of well-being, the state of everything is all right, everything's good. That's the state to get ourselves into quickly and then learn to maintain it through this observation of one wholesome thought after another until we get it solid. So that we can maintain the state of wholesome. But what else was <laughs> what else was your other option? Just to go back into feeling bad. So let's go ahead and finish now. I'm really glad to see both of you. This has been a very happy talk. Thank you. Back. I hope to see you again soon. Ron, I hope to see you again soon. Likewise. Okay. Likewise. All right. Bye-bye. Take care.